Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning is taken from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, beginning at verse 12 and extending to the end of the chapter. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, what will the ungodly, and where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This is the word of the Lord. One of the earliest of Christian writings we have that is not in the New Testament is a book called The Martyrdom Polycarp. It's a letter from the church at Smyrna where Polycarp had been the pastor to other churches. Polycarp was a really a very old man and he was very well thought of in the community, but there was fiery hatred of the Christians that burned in the city of Smyrna and it burned him up. They, they murdered him. And it's an account of his murder, but it's a glorious celebration of how even though he was murdered, his life and even the way he faced death was a testimony to the Christian gospel. And that's what the majority of the book is. It's telling how that, that happened. The very first bit which I thought about reading a little bit of, but it's, it's kind of long and I don't know where to start and where to stop, is kind of a celebration of the sort of thing that Peter is talking about here. The martyrs in general had been able to suffer for Christ and God had blessed this and it had been a true testimony. God had used it to preach the gospel to those who had watched what had happened. Uh, and it kind of makes martyrdom seem kind of glorious. And because of that, it backs up just a little bit, just in case you're thinking a little too highly about this. Um, after it talks about how the, the crowd turned on Polycarp and shouted, go get the Christians, we're going to kill them, there's a mention of another guy. His name is Quintus. But one man named Quintus, a Phrygian who had recently come from Phrygia, when he saw the wild beasts, which they had prepared for those who they wanted to kill, he was frightened. He was the man who had forced himself and some others 
to come forward of their own accord. The governor, after much earnest entreaty, prevailed upon this man to take the oath and offer the sacrifice. That, brethren, is why we do not approve of those who give themselves up, for the gospel does not teach us to do so. Quintius had seen, oh, well, suffering for Christ, that's a glorious thing. Let's go do that. Let's kind of force their hand. And then when he got there, he ended up denying Christ. He ended up uh, serving the darkness. And the early church basically says, don't be Quintius. Don't, don't do that. There is nothing in God's word that says, go and find trouble. Go and seek out suffering somehow that is glorifying to God. Tertullian is famous, another early Christian leader, for saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And of course, he's not wrong. There is great truth to that. Wherever you have the hatred of truth, the hatred of Christ, that it pours over onto his people, and God redeems that, and he uses it for his glory and his good. But we need to keep this in context. Um, persecution is sometimes prayed for by well-meaning Christians. They look at places in the world where the church is persecuted, where people are murdered and tortured for the gospel, and they see a church that is more faithful than the church they see around them. And so they actually pray, Lord, let us be persecuted. Because if the fires of persecution pour down upon us, that will purify the church. They're not wrong. Again, everything I'm kind of setting out here, I want to keep the kind of things in balance. They're not wrong. But there's a thing or two in this passage that we really kind of need to look at to have a mature view of this sort of thing. It is, without doubt, persecution, which is in picture here. At other points in First Peter, he has used the concept of difficulties, trials, and that sort of thing in a very general way. And he said, you know, all of this is used by God. When you're suffering, God redeems that for the believer uh, God is at work in your life through suffering, that sort of thing. But here, it is very specific. This is, quote, a fiery trial that has come upon you. And the fiery trial is specifically, quote, that you partake in Christ's sufferings. He has been building that since the beginning of chapter 4, and actually before. The first verse of chapter 4 says... Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Uh, we focused on the second part of this verse when I preached on it. But the first part is extremely important. You belong to the Lord Christ. Uh, he suffered for the ungodly. He suffered for the wicked. He suffered for those who didn't love him. Specifically, he suffered for us, because all of that was true about us. And if you're going to belong to Christ, well, the student will face the same life as the teacher, as the master. And so Peter is talking about that, 
we are being persecuted for Christ. It is his hatred that they're pouring out on us. Uh, um, that's going to happen. Is that totally and completely a good thing? Well, I mean, God uses it. You, you, you know that. It's not exactly like a spoiler. That's the major theme of the passage. But there's a thing or two that Peter says that needs to give you a little pause, especially if you see it in the original. Um, there are a couple of commands here that stand out. It's verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange, that's a command, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. The Spirit of God says, don't think this is strange, this is normal, that's a command. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, that's a command, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed is also a command, but let him glorify God in this matter. I want to show you something about all those verses. Uh, as, as the people in the Bible study know, I brought my cheat sheet with me today. I'm actually going to put it up here. This is kind of a table of what Greek verses, verbs do. And you'll see, you know, I don't need to read the whole thing, but you'll see that various verb tenses do things like this one. Every time in my, you know, my cheat sheet I see that symbol there, it says, never begin to do this. Don't do this at all. Don't even start. So in the original, God's word says, okay, here's a command. You're not supposed to ever do this. Don't do it. These commands are not in that verb tense. These commands are in this verb tense, one that has a little hand doing this. What Matt says is, stop doing this. Go on refusing to do this. But there's a sense that you were doing it. Now you stop keep stopping but you have been doing it every one of these commands that i've read verse 12 verse 15 verse 16 that's the tense that it's in so verse 12 beloved do not think it's strange stop thinking it's strange you have been thinking it's strange you consider this to be something that you don't understand Stop thinking it's strange about the fiery trial. Verse 15, y'all stop suffering as murderers. Y'all stop suffering as thieves, as evildoers, or as busybodies. It's not don't start. You've never done it, and I want you not to. It's you have been doing this, and I want you to stop it. Or in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him stop being ashamed of it, because y'all have, but let him glorify God in this matter. What happens when God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, brings persecution on the church? Does it purify the church? Well, the answer is yes. But it is also an avenue for temptation 
that is unique. Persecution falls on them, and they begin to doubt the goodness of God. Don't we belong to the Lord? Aren't we God's special people? Doesn't the providence of God promise us that God has a wonderful plan for our lives because we're saved people? How can these things be happening to us? Now, we're not supposed to think like that because we're not, you know, we're not Pentecostals. We're Reformed people. Uh, we're God's frozen chosen. We're not health, wealth, and prosperity, except in our heart we kind of are. We expect that if we belong to the Lord, he is going to send us really good stuff. And then suddenly terrible things happen. In the flesh, there is the temptation to say, how can that happen? I'm supposed to be special to God. Um, I'm ashamed of what's happening to me. All my friends know that I'm Christian. I've, I've spoken about it. They know it. I've kind of led with it. You know, I've been evangelical. Now these bad things are happening to me. Fill in the blank, whatever it may be. Isn't this a terrible witness? Isn't this something that my unbelieving friends will look at and say, look, you said God loved you, but look what's happening. Uh, I'm ashamed. I, I don't know how to respond to that. And so I'm going to hide my face because I'm ashamed that God has brought me into dark things. Or that middle command, y'all stop being murderous. Y'all stop thieving. That is moral breaking of God's commandments and it's in the context of fiery trials are falling on you Quintus who the the martyrdom of Polycarp talks about uh, he blasphemes God's name effectively he declares Caesar is Lord rather than Christ how is it that when dark things fall upon us that make us doubt the goodness of God would lead us into moral indiscretion. Well, if you think about it for more than half a minute, it makes perfect sense. I am doubting the goodness of God. Will he care for me? I don't know. I may not have what I need. I'll steal. I'm doubting the goodness of God. Uh, these things are happening. I'm supposed to be special. I'm mad about it to the point I'm murderous. It's just not really that far of a stretch. And according to the apostle, that's exactly what's been happening. Persecution has fallen upon the church. God is doing what he wishes to do, and it's having a godly effect. But it's also a new avenue for the devil to tempt. And he's been doing that. And the apostle says, you have to realize the devil is at work in this as well. You don't want a new avenue for temptation. That's not something you should be praying for. And that's happening, and it's a new call to repentance because this new environment is causing new sins. So praying about persecution is really not something that is very wise. But it's also kind of a little irrelevant. It's I mean, the word I'm looking for is, is escaping me. You don't need to do that because, quite frankly, trouble is going to find you. Peter is very, very clear 
the New Testament is very, very clear in many places. You don't have to go looking for the world to hate you. You, you just don't have to do that because it's going to do it. Beloved, do not think it's strange, this fiery trial that has fallen upon you. Uh, this is not odd. This is how things do work from time to time. Trouble will find you. Um, when that happens, uh, know that God told you all about it. So far from promising you an easy life, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, uh, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I've said it many times, but it bears saying that's a promise from the Apostle. You will suffer persecution. You don't have to look for it. And Christ himself, uh, when he walked among us, was pretty clear. He said in Luke chapter 21, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will do it. Christ is, is telling it's going to happen. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. They will. It's going to happen. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. So Christ clearly says to us, the entire world's going to hate you. And why? Well, when he's talking with the apostles in the upper room, in John chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. In fact, have, have you noticed, by the way, you can kind of tell the spiritual estate of someone by how the world reacts when they die? It's not perfect, but if when somebody dies and they're, you know, they're famous enough that it makes the news, if the world goes, this was a wonderful person, we are totally, we, we've lost this person, isn't it terrible? The odds are that person is awful. But if the media is like, well, you know, the flaming fundamentalist who was kind of successful in religion is dead now, uh, will kind of report it as that's bad, but tee hee hee, we're glad he's gone. Generally, that was a good person. That was, was a godly person. Christ says, if the world hates you, know that they hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, they did, and so therefore they're going to. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Earlier this week, I ran into a true piece of work. I know that I'm supposed to be positive about all people, but nah, not about this person. They were absolutely nasty. Uh, I had I had spoken of why would you believe that there is a God? You know, I'm a I'm an EKU religion professor. That's kind of my bread and butter. Um, intellectually, it's really kind of deficient not to believe in a God. Now, this is not saying the Christian God. That that's a bigger step. But the idea of believing in what philosophy calls a ground of being, believing in a first cause, honestly, intellectually, you kind of have to buy into that, or the entire causal universe collapses. Well, this person just went off on me. I mean, called me everything but a righteous person. Um, and then made the comment, I don't know even why I try. I thought, well, that's an interesting statement. I don't know why you try either. Because you don't believe in God officially. You believe he's absent. But you're so angry and you're so evangelistic. How can you be evangelistic about something that you don't believe exists? How can you be so utterly militant if you're an, a nihilist? I mean, under her worldview, there's no reason to have any meaning at all. So when she says, why do I care? I have to join her and say, why does she care? And the answer is, she doesn't believe anything she's saying. She hates God, or she wouldn't be like this. You don't hate something you don't believe in. She's a, a solid believer just not a God-given faith kind of believer. She hates God, and Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. And she was example one of that, and that's why she cares. You don't have to go looking for that. It'll find you. There is also, by the way, with this passage... Uh, there's a correlation with a passage that we like to quote a lot. As, as Reformed Christians, we believe that if you have been brought from death to life, you will never see judgment, you will never fall out of salvation. You have assurance of your salvation. And when somebody challenges that and says, why do you believe that? Uh, we will go to Romans chapter 8, to the end of the chapter. There are other places we go, but that is one of the, the favorite places. It says that God will never let us be pulled out of his hand. And it does. 
And the text does a very good job of saying, once you're saved, you're always saved. But have you ever listened to what the apostle is saying might make us question our salvation? Normally, when you are questioning your salvation, why are you doing it? Well, you've usually let sin get a hold of you. Uh, sin has won for a little bit. It's bashed you on the rocks. You're wondering, how can God love somebody like me who falls down, yada, yada, yada. Listen to Romans chapter uh, 8, beginning in verse 31 and going to the end. But what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So there you've got the concept of sin. Uh, a charge might be brought against us, but it's not going to happen because God is the judge and they're going to do it. Um, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, it is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So that's the typical understanding. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is where it gets a little different than how we normally use it. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That's not falling into sin. That's bad things happening to you. The apostle knows very well that there is still in the flesh that, that understanding that if I'm God's special person, he'll never let anything bad happen to me. And that's just clearly not true. In fact, passages like this and passages like our focus passage, where Peter says at the end, now it may be God's will for you to suffer, it's the exact opposite. You may suffer. You may have uh, persecution, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Any of those things can happen. As it is written, and he quotes the Psalms, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, uh, yeah, we, we doubt our salvations when we sin, but we also doubt the goodness of God when bad things happen. And the apostle says, you're not separated from God when the business goes belly up. You're not separated from God when cancer strikes. You're not separation, separated from God when you can't pay the mortgage. Why would he say that? It's because we're tempted to think it. The same thing is true here. God is your God, no matter what is happening, Peter is assuring them of that, and that's their temptation. Their temptation is to think bad things are happening, God doesn't love us. 
uh, here is where the early church can write the martyrdom of Polycarp and celebrate the martyrs. You don't go looking for martyrdom, but there is a spiritual truth that the hatred of the world is actually the guarantee of the praise of God. Peter says, but rejoice, if this is happening, and it is happening, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Now that sounds lovely until you're enduring it. When somebody is attacking you and making your life miserable, specifically because you belong to Christ, uh, that's what you tend to focus on. But Peter is here saying the very hatred of the world, uh, you should hear the praise of God in it because you can only really have one of them pat you on the back and say, well done, good and faithful servant. If the world pats you on the back and says, well done, good and faithful servant, heaven probably isn't, and vice versa. And then the apostle says something that we need to not miss. He says, on their part, he is blasphemed. Trust me, my piece of work was blaspheming Christ all over the board while insulting me. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified, which brings up an interesting question. God is at work glorifying himself. That's actually good for his people. That's the ultimate good. Uh, I agree with John Piper that when God is most glorified, we're most blessed. That's true. Um, you've got people like my piece of work, blaspheming Christ. Are they doing the will of God when they do it? How would you answer that? It's a little complicated. You have Joseph's brothers. They are envious and envy of the sin. Their envy grows to hatred. They throw the brother in a well and they finally sell him into slavery. Are they doing the will of God? Well, in Genesis... Joseph says, you meant it for evil. You, in your hearts, were sinful. What you did was not good at all. But then he says, God meant it for good. So were they doing the will of God or not? In Reformed theology, we tend to give names to phenomena. And this is one of those things which, once you understand it, a huge amount of the Bible opens up. There is God's, what we call decretio will, because that sounds really cool. We, we like to sound intellectual. And there is God's moral will. And these two things aren't exactly the same. God's moral will is you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. God doesn't want people to do that. He clearly says that's morally evil. And yet, we're told that God has predestined all things from the foundation of the world. 
all things. So what you've got going on here is God has decreed certain things from the foundation of the world. He has a decretal will. This is what he wants to happen that will ultimately glorify him the most. But there is a moral will which God says, this is good. If you want to glorify me and be faithful to me, you will do these things. Um, those who are attacking you, Peter says, they intend it for blasphemy. Don't think they are moral at all. They are, in fact, what they look like. They hate God, and that's why they hate you. They are, in fact, immoral, evil people. But God is still at work under what they're doing. His decretal will is taking place. God is ultimately bringing things to glory, just like with Joseph. You know, if the brothers went to God and said, God, I'm really envious of my brother, and I'm going to kill him. You down with that? God would have said, no, that is immoral, but God predestined all things, and Joseph says, God predestined this to save many people alive. Well, Peter reminds the believers, you know, when they shout at you because they hate God, you're guaranteed God's going to pat you on the back. They mean it for blasphemy, but God means it for good. It's the same sort of thing. And it is the promise of God that if the world hates you, it is evidence God loves you. And you kind of got to decide who you want to love you. Because you can't have both. Judgment from time to time falls from God in history. A number of people have read Peter saying, for now is the time that judgment begins the house of God. And they've read it apocalyptically. You know, this is a promise of an end time where the judgment of God is going to fall on the whole world. That, that is going to happen. But Peter is writing in the present tense, and he's writing to people who are experiencing things. And he quotes Solomon. So he quotes somebody from 3,000 years ago, and he's writing 2,000 years ago. And he says, now the judgment of God begins at the house of God. From time to time, God brings his judgment, his testing, and times of persecution are that. And Peter says, when God does that, he starts at the house of God. He doesn't start with the Babylonians. He doesn't start with the Romans. He doesn't start with the Federal Reserve. Uh, he doesn't start with the Masons. He doesn't start with the Communists. He starts with the house of God, and that's where the, the testing begins. Uh, he's already introduced that in this epistle. At the first verse, he said, the first chapter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begot us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and it does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So Peter begins by saying, you have all this God-given blessing. You rejoice in it. The, the heavenly treasury is open to you, even though for now you're like gold that God has put in the flaming oven to blast away all the impurities. Uh, we like the first part. The last part we read over quick. But the last part is actually what the epistle is about. God so loves the world that at the end of history, who exists in the world? Well, it's the elect of God. That's the only people here. God loves his church. God is redeeming his church. Judgment is a testing fire. We tend to think of judgment as a now God is, is going to bring about all perfection. That's true of the final judgment, but judgment is testing in the oven. Judgment is, what, what is this? Is it in good shape or is it bad shape? You know, we're going to look at it, we're going to test it. Well, Peter says persecution is like that, and it begins at the house of God because God cares about the house of God. It doesn't begin with the Chinese because God isn't redeeming the Chinese. He's redeeming people who are Chinese, but they're in the church of God. God doesn't care about communists, though some will be redeemed and brought into the church of God. God doesn't care about libertarians, but some of us will kick and scream and be brought into the church of God. God cares about the church of God. And that's why judgment begins here is because we're the focus of what God loves. But we need to realize that means we get put in the oven. And that's what's happening to them. Don't think it's strange since you're God's gold, you're going to get tested. And he brings all of this to its conclusion in the final verse. Therefore, he says, which sums up, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So in summing up, Peter says, you may very well be ill-treated. Um, it may very well happen. It's not just. And you're going to say, this is not just. And God will go, you're right. And yet, it may very well be the will of God. Peter says it inconsequently, in and it's right there. It may be the will of God that you suffer, and it's unjust suffering, but it's the will of God. And when that happens, the command, the ultimate command, which all of them are pointing to, is commit your souls. Your soul is not just your inner man, it's your outer man too. That's how the word works. It's your whole person. Commit everything that is you to doing good, not to avoid being ill-treated, not at the end of being ill-treated when you get back up, but commit your souls to doing good while the ill-treatment is happening and do it committing your souls to God as, quote, a faithful creator. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My comfort is that I am not my own, 
but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my what? Faithful Savior. He created me. He knows every hair in my head. Not one can fall, but what God says, it's okay. In fact, he sends his spirit to me to convince me of eternal life. Uh, my comfort is that my creator is my savior, and he's good no matter what happens. Peter is a great Calvinist, as this chapter ends. Commit yourself to your faithful creator not to escape this, but to know he is good. To know that God is doing his goodwill, it may be through his decretal will, but he is doing his goodwill. You are the gold of God. You are being tested. God is at work. Don't think it's strange. Trust God.